Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast once again with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Pasha Irshad. He's the co-founder of Shape and Scale. Shape and Scale help orchestrate growth for B2B SaaS companies. Pasha, welcome. Hey, it's great to be here. Excellent. Well, today, Pasha and I are going to be looking at yeah, gnarly questions that you're probably ignoring. Stuff like, you know, what's the actual business impact? The technology that we're just about to blow a great word of cash on. And how does that impact our results? How does that impact our people? Are you even able to track that? Do you know where you're spending your money, what's working and what isn't? Do you even have an understanding of the downstream impact of buying this technology on the overall customer's experience? You know, you'd be surprised at just how often terrible decisions early on have a downstream effect affecting other parts of the business and the customer. We're going to look at blind spots. We're going to look at blind spots around total cost of ownership, the time to value, failure to understand how integrations work, where the data gaps are. And we're going to look at the depth of work that needs to be done so that your sales and marketing organization have what they need. And you're not just burning through money. So Pasha, would you mind giving everyone 60 to 90 seconds on your history and how you got to where you are today, please? Yeah, I would love to. Um, so I'm Pasha Irshad, Pakistani Dutch. I was born in Amsterdam, immigrated to the U.S. when I was, I don't know, three years old. I learned most of what I know now in the restaurant industry. So, <laughs> you know, in my in my 20s, I was I pretty much played every position, right? Waiter, bartender, bar manager, paid for college that way. But it's funny when we talk about systems, processes, operating efficiently, working together as a team. That's everything that you need to run a restaurant from the bar to the kitchen to just efficiently serving your customer. So that really, I probably learned more there than I did in college. No offense to the University of Maryland, but it, it really gave me a bedrock for some of those, you know, the key things that I still use with my clients today. From there, I got into the agency world. So 13 years in agencies, cut my teeth actually in like branding and uh, website project management. And so that project management lens, I bring to pretty much every engagement that I have. And it's been, it's been critical. I did a little B2B, did a little B2C, and then bounced back to B2B, where for 10 years, I helped scale the digital practice of my last agency, probably like 300% over that time, a really focused on, at that time, it was lead and demand generation, anything paid media. And then six years ago, I saw what HubSpot was going to become. And I'm obviously not a savant because I didn't get too much of that stock or we probably wouldn't be talking. I'd be retired somewhere. But <laughs> I kind of saw where things were going. And so we brought HubSpot on in my agency to kind of manage those internal processes. And then you know, about a year ago, I, my, my co-founder, Suzanne Block, and I, you know, we made a decision that it was probably time to go out on our own, started, you know, working to get to that point. And in May of this year, we did. We launched Shape and Scale, currently service about 10 clients across SaaS technology sector. And obviously, a large part of that as a HubSpot partner is helping our clients really orchestrate that growth. And when I talk about orchestrating growth, think about a conductor that conductor is leading the orchestra. And that's the way we see it, right? The orchestra to me is sales. And I start with sales, marketing, and then obviously customer service and support. And so that's me. Okay, so really interesting. Tell me this. Why is it that 
organizations spend so much money on technology that they don't use, they use poorly, that overlaps in functionality. And over the last seven years, we've seen average quota attainment plummet from an average of 60, 65% to below 40%. Today, heading towards 30. Yeah, I've got some thoughts on this. I would say it's a few things, right? If you look at the marketing technology landscape, it comes out every year. I want to say, I don't know, three, four years ago, we were at about 5,000. This year, we were just shy of 10,000. So that's 10,000 marketing technology tools, solutions, platforms that sit across everything from advertising to CMS to marketing automation to user experience. It runs the gambit, right? So people in organizations are flooded with this technology. And much like Netflix, if you've ever sat down on a Friday night and you're scanning through, there's so many options that you start to get decision fatigue, right? Like it's, it's hard to make a decision. And you're always looking for that next thing that's going to be a little bit better. That's one piece of it. And then I think the second piece is think about sales technology has is really... We talk about MarTech a lot, but sales technology is just, in my opinion, growing just as quickly. And so when you look at sales technology, you think of you know the outreaches of the world, sales loft. I mean, now you've got this full suite of tools that can support sales. And then you've got the same thing about customer support. So you know, encapsulating that, you've got so many choices. You've and got probably decisions and partnerships. And so you've just got so many choices. And what is that compounded by? That's compounded by time to value for SaaS organizations, where we all know that um, with SaaS and subscription models, when rates have gone down, right? I believe it's one in eight by winning by design. And so you've got investor pressure to do more in less time. You've got people that come into organizations and they don't have a lot of time. You know, even from a marketing standpoint, you don't have a lot of time to hit the ground. You don't have a lot of time to hit the ground running, and then you're not usually given enough time to see it through. So you might flail. And when you start flailing, you have all these beautiful, shiny objects in front of you that are going to hopefully take some of the weight off your shoulders. And so you grasp for that, right? You, you grasp for it. And I think when anybody's in what I call an untenable situation, you'll start to grasp for things to make you more successful instead of relying on the fundamentals. So I would say that's the second thing, which is just what I call market drivers. And then I would say the third thing is we are we have a reptilian brain, right? Like I've I purchased tech for my last company and I purchased tech for shape and scale. I have been guilty of just that dopamine rush of, hey, we just got this new solution on. It looks amazing. It's going to do everything that we need it to do when I'm not even utilizing what's already there, right? What's utilizing, I mean, if you look at most, adoption and utilization rates, they're nowhere where they need to be for any of this. You know, when I do HubSpot audits, I usually see like, even just in the marketing hub, we're not using the social integration. We're not using advertising integrations. We're just not utilizing it to its fullest capabilities. So I think when you combine those three things, it's not surprising where we are. I'd go one step further, which is I too frequently see, especially enterprise and strategic levels, the people who have to live with it and use the product are almost never involved. And that inevitably sets up 
a conflict situation because they're being you know shoehorned uh, into using a process or something that they didn't volunteer for, they weren't involved in. And in the same way that when you talk about having engineers or user experience people come up with much better ideas than the engineer does. In fact, I, I had a conversation earlier today with somebody uh, on exactly this topic. And uh, the company was pushing and pushing and pushing about these features and functions. The UX team had uh, mechanics in central London come in to try this feature. And without exception, they all hated it. And every one of them came up with better suggestions. But I don't think we listen to the customer anywhere near enough. And to build on your earlier point, because people are in such a hurry, they never spend the time to really build an understanding. So they're guilty of falling for the lazy why. And that's lethal because that's the, that's the bedrock. Uh, that's the foundation stone for creating negative unintended consequences. Totally agree. It's interesting when you think about it. If you just think about anywhere from C to Series B, and what I see is you've got founder and founder-led sales where you might have one founder is working on the product and the tech, the other one's out there selling. There's not a lot of time on their end to really make those technological decisions, right? They might have a they might have an understanding of what's out there. And it just really depends. You might have a founder who's already flipped a few companies and maybe is doing it the way it was done years ago. And you might have a relatively new founder who is just, again, more focused on the product. So what we see is infrastructure is usually, I don't want to call it an afterthought, but it is, right? It becomes a bit of an afterthought and that's no one's fault, right? It's just the situation. Those first few hires, I believe, are critical in establishing that foundation, if you're not working with a consultant like myself, right? That's a that's a shameless plug. But you know, those first few hires is is and who are those hires, right? An AE that knows the industry, perhaps they have a good handle on that. What I talked about earlier, sales tech, maybe not such a good handle on the marketing tech, right? And so, if you think about that first hire on the marketing side, I would say it should be usually some type of demand generation, but it could be product marketing, right? You could argue both. Those people are really integral to setting the stage, not only for the technology decisions, but the processes and systems that take you from C to Series A and then the Series B, and you go from growth to scale, right? Growth is spending more money. Scale is doing more with less. I don't know about you, but those two things get confused all the time, literally all the time. But again, part of the problem is that they're also blended. And because they're blended, they don't recognize the different requirements and they're looking for a reactive quick fix instead of putting the stuff in place that they need to. And when I'm working yep. with my clients, I'm working at least three years ahead typically and working backwards from there because then we've got a clear path to the outcome, you know, the job to be done. But yep. if you're not doing that and you're just bouncing from one crisis and one shiny object to another then your investment decisions are going to be based on trying to fix symptoms, not causes. And that's a recipe for disaster. I completely agree. I think it's, I mean, it just goes back to single source of the truth. And I think HubSpot, where it was, it's funny, you know, I've been selling it for a long time. Six years ago, to me, it was a competitor with the Marketos of the world, right? The Pardots of the world. People just saw it as this like email automation tool 
and really where they are today, I mean, it's, it's a platform, right? And the platform's power is in the marketplace that feeds into it, the integrations. And again, the visibility across sales, marketing, and support. And we all know that we all know that in SaaS with true profitability coming in, I don't know, 24 months, that customer support is maybe the most important and critical piece of that, right? And so that handles the upsell, the cross-sell, and just reducing churn. Now, again, HubSpot has Service Hub, which you know supports that piece of the puzzle. But I think that's also something that gets neglected a lot when you think about all this technology um, because it's so fo- focused heavily on marketing and sales. Obviously, you have the Zendesks of the world, but... I think one conversation that we all need to be having is, you know, how do we empower support service, whatever you want to call it, because that is becoming truly a linchpin for what can make or break an organization. I've been saying that to all of my HubSpot clients for um, ages now, um, because service is expansion, the opportunity for an expansion sell. There's 1150% profit compared with, new business, which is 18%, or upsell, which is 170. And this is from the SaaS industry. It's a bank SaaS 2019 study. Now, what that tells us, though, is I think there's a cultural issue here because so many of the, uh, the sales leaders have come from direct sales and they don't necessarily know or like playing nicely with others. So they're not very cooperative across teams and uh, departments. And this is across SaaS generally. I'm not singling HubSpot out uh, specifically. But they've got a very immature middle management layer. And you say that they take, you know, the typical runway is 24 months. Well, you're getting Sequoia, you're getting Y Combinator, these guys uh, coming in and saying, well, now you've got to make a profit and you've got to make a profit sooner. So how are they going to be able to adapt when everything that made them a hero in the past now turns them into a villain. They can't pull deals forward. They can't discount. They can't throw stuff in because all of that eats into profit. And if you've got to make profit in six months instead of 18 or 24, that's a very, very different type of salesperson. Agreed. It's interesting. I mean, you know, I think the question... (laughs) This opens up a can of worms. But I mean, even from a marketing standpoint, if you look at just over the last two to three years, what the conversation is around, you know, generating demand for your product and just what is marketing and the marketing's role, right? Like marketing is to help build affinity for your brand across a target set of customers. I mean, that's a loose definition. That takes time, right? And as a, you know, somebody who used to work in an agency, and I've worked at many agencies, right? I mean, oftentimes I would get a director from the person above me that, hey, we just promised getting this client X amount of leads in 90 days and Mm. the sales cycle is 12 months, right? And so what happens then is, you know, my ass was on the line. So I go and do the content syndication. I'm like, here's your thousand leads that you want. And those leads die in the vine. How do we have conversations with leadership at a very high level that allow us as consultants, as marketers, salespeople, to have an appropriate runway to achieve success? And that's probably a question that I don't have the answer to. And I, you know, people pontificate all day on LinkedIn, but that to me, that's a lot of it. It's just 
change management, right? Coming to consensus, just some of those more high level people orientated decisions or, or, or processes that I, I don't think a lot of orgs or consultants have the answer to. The challenge here, and this ties in very much with my wife, Suzanne, calls it the, t- uh, the stack fallacy, but it's P-H-A-L-L, because it seems to be an awful lot of willy-waving. And there's a huge amount of investment in technology in the hope that it will give the fiction of control, because I think what most of this stuff has done is it's created so much complexity and so many different layers and touch points and actions that take people away from the fundamentals. To my mind, why is the technology not driving the one really critical thing, which is time in front of the customer? At the moment, the average seems to be somewhere between 12 and 21%. The average SDR spends three minutes a day actually speaking to someone on the list. Seven out of eight first meetings do not result in a second. That speaks to me of an inordinate amount of upfront waste where 99% of the effort, the budget, the blood, sweat, and tears goes into making the TAM aware that you exist, pushing them onto your marketing platform so you can scream, we're here, in their already deafened ear, and then spend marketing dollars and effort to push them onto your sales platform so you can vomit features and functionality all over them in the hope that they'll enter your pipeline. And most of that money is wasted, and a goodly chunk is spent driving your customers to your competitors because the experience has been so shit. Um, Yeah, I mean, we see it all the time. Um, It's like the Google ads. And I I remember you seeing a couple of your LinkedIn posts that made me laugh because you were talking about programmatic media, which is something I I dabbled in heavily over the years. And yeah, I mean, it's really a, gosh, it's this whole environment that has been built around selling really impressions and if you really dig into the numbers and you're working with somebody worth their salt, you start to look at things like viewability and you start to look at things like, you know, what's the inventory? I mean, how many SaaS tech B2B companies are, their inventory includes mobile gaming, right? Like there's just so many holes in all of this that ends up in wasted spend. That's not to say Google ads, Google search, right? I mean, I hate to beat up on them, but Google is a company that hasn't truly, if you look at it, look, I'll never be what they are, right? I'm not, uh, so I'm not ripping on them, but you just have to look in that. They have not truly innovated in that $60 billion of their revenue comes from Google advertising, right? And I think on the last earnings report, they saw, I don't know, 13% increase while everyone's going down. They're moving completely to machine learning and AI and they're taking more of the, they're taking more away from the user. Yeah, just in terms of like owning it and making decisions. So you just have to look, you got to look at it too. And I mean, it's a great point what you were saying and, and your wife says is that there is a fallacy in technology that gives you control. And this is something that Chris Walker from Refined Lab says a lot, which I just, I love. It's that the same people that are prescribing you the medicine make the medicine, right? Like, so it's like you got yeah. tech companies saying like, hey, you should do this. And it's like, but wait, final point on that is I really love what you said about the fundamentals. I've had conversations with people on LinkedIn. Look, I came up, I taught myself digital marketing, right? I taught it, nobody ever taught me last 10 years. 
I don't know, you know, thousands of hours spent learning it. But what I've found is over the last two to three years, I started going back to the immutable laws of branding, right? Um, I started going back to Ogilvy. I started going back to positioning because it's those, those fundamentals never really truly change, right? Those same fundamentals and they don't. Uh, And so you just have a generation, I think, of marketers and sales folks. Well, let me speak for marketers that, that, that aren't versed in the fundamentals. They're more versed in the tactics, right? And that's um, and the so point. That, yep. It's the same thing with sales and sales training. It, where, where you start teaching tactics, people think that they have, uh, have to use this great new jujitsu move on a prospect. And no yep. one wants to be manipulated, manhandled, bullied, or uh, steered through you know, directional questioning. Red Stuffstrom describes it as feeling like being kettled when yep. someone's asking you those type of questions. And it does. And you, it's obvious my war cry really is for you know, re-implement humanity, behave like a human being, think like a human being, and turn up and treat your customers like a human being. And that seems to be have been missed a lot because the technology drives efficiency. It doesn't drive effectiveness, especially in the way it seems to have uh, driven a wedge between buyer and seller in terms of the relationship and the level of intimacy and trust. Can you speak to that? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think in terms of, you know, that leads me, I had a, have a saying, I think speaks to this a little bit. It's like, you can give myself and Van Gogh a paintbrush, but only one of us is going to paint a masterpiece, right? So like these tools that we're all given, if there's no strategy behind them, if there's no training behind them, it's not going to amount to anything, right? So again, like I can have the, like you said, I can have the best product in the world, I'm a shit salesperson that doesn't really understand people, right? And is just going off the latest system framework from the latest sales influencer or, or same thing for marketer, right? Like if I'm all, you know, if I'm not first in anything um, strategically, I don't have a strategic bent, it, it's not going to work. So within that context, it's why I say I learned every this what this goes back to what we started with, right? In the restaurant industry, I learned a few things. One is I learned people, <laughs> waiting on people, bartending, talking to people, getting to know people, understanding their wants, needs. I mean, that that's something innate that has been, you know, has helped me excel in my career. And so I think that's why a lot of people that excel in sales and marketing, not to take this on a tangent, but they're very multidisciplinary, right? They can wear a lot of different hats. And I think as we start to come into this, you know, whatever you want to call it, the future, next frontier, what I'm seeing in my dark social channels and just conversations with all kinds of different people in sales, marketing, and support is the best ones know about sales, right? The best marketers know about sales. They study sales. The best salespeople start to study marketing. And obviously from a service and support perspective, they understand kind of both, right? I don't think in today's landscape, it's not necessarily a prerequisite, but I don't think you're going to be successful without understanding the way all this works together. Because in theory, with RevOps, right? I haven't talked about RevOps. Well, RevOps, to me, it's the science of revenue. But a more basic, bastardized version of that definition is alignment across all customer-facing departments, right? And how can you have alignment if you don't have an understanding, right? Like, how can I align in any relationship I can't align on, an, on, on anything with my wife unless I have an understanding of her perspective, right? 
I can't align on anything with sales if I don't understand what the process is. And so I think when you start to peel back those layers, you get a sense of what the problem is and perhaps what the solution is. Well, I think you've touched on a couple of things as well, which um, are really worth digging uh, into a bit deeper. One of the big challenges is that it's all well and good bringing the technology in. But if you're turning your salespeople over every 12 to 14 months, then the people who were trained are going to already have left. So unless there is that constant stream of uh, training, then people aren't going to be using the technology to anywhere near its capability. So again, I think there's a huge buildup of cost here. I was chatting to, I think it was my conversation with Jason Hubbard. He runs an agency, uh, outbound agency. And he's spending around, if I remember correctly, 20 grand a year per rep. Now, how can an SME spend that kind of money in providing the technology support for a sales team? I think there's going to be a real shift and it's going to be very difficult to maintain an effective in-house sales team uh, for SMEs. And so I think this is where ecosystems, partnerships, channels uh, are really going to come into their own. And I think a large number of sales jobs will just disappear and they will be replaced by marketing automation. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, again, over the last six months, I've been lucky to meet so many really smart sales professionals that I respect a lot that have given me insight, more insight than I've had in the last 13 years of my career. I would say, yeah, a couple of things. I mean, from an SDR perspective, in my opinion, most aren't given the tools to succeed. And when you talk about time to value, I think, you know, again, in most organizations, they don't get the right training, might not have the right tools. And there's a lot of, there's just, just as much downward pressure on them as there is in marketing. I think the SDR role is evolving. In my opinion, it could easily slot under marketing. It could be a part of demand generation. The best SDRs and sellers I know are actively social selling, right? They understand what that looks like. And so I think you're seeing a shift there. I also think that in the future, yeah, I do think marketing automation is going to play a role. I sometimes wonder how authentic it is, right? So many conversations about, you know, the moment you give up your information, you know, you're going to get that, I don't know, you're going to get that sequence to try to get you to buy. And it just, you know, I think as buyers become more savvy, which they already are, more millennials or decision makers, there's a stat, wish I had it, but more millennials are becoming decision makers. Those millennials have been raised in a different way than maybe Gen X has. Five years ago, yeah. 60% of managers were millennials. Uh, there you go. Today, 30% of the workforce are Gen Z. Well, there you go. And so within that, I think there's just a different level of authenticity that is needed. And so, again, folks that can adhere to that or learn, learn from it and adapt are going to have a leg up. And I think we just see that in some of what you said earlier, right? Like, and I'll talk about it from an agency perspective. You know, I don't know, five years ago at an agency, it's all about the FTEs, right? Trying to get full-time equivalents, trying to make sure everybody's billable. And so what usually happens is you have, I don't know, some departments that are fully billable, others that aren't. You cut that department. You maybe have one person. They're not that great. In today's partnership and ecosystem world, a small consultancy like mine that has a large network has the access to some of the best and brightest in terms of like outbound SDR teams, right? And I can, instead of 
instead of shoehorning that into my practice, I can easily pass that person off. So you get best in breed. I mean, obviously my relationship with you is, is a testament to, I've gotten sales advice from you that has been, you know, I've, I've learned more in those 20, 30 minute sessions than I ever had throughout my career where I really haven't had a mentor, right? So there's this agility and ownership that has been granted to us that are harnessing it in the world of partnerships and ecosystems where we're able to bring this to different, you know, our clients, to our partners. And so not to get off track, but to tie it back to what I think you were talking about, I just see it this way, right? I agree that there is going to be a shift. I think the SDR role could easily go underneath marketing. I definitely think the outbound SDR and outbound you know, selling is going to probably continue to increase. You'll see more of those organizations for the reasons that you just spoke about. And when you think about it, think about it like this, you have, you go from founder-led sales, right? You might hire that AE, but you're not ready. You don't even have PMF yet, right? So you're not necessarily ready to hire two to three SDRs that you might let go in six months. So bringing on that outbound team that understands your industry and is very specific to it starts to become way more, um, it it just becomes more attractive, not only from just a a revenue and, you know, lifetime customer value perspective, but just from a culture perspective, right? Like you don't want to hire people that are going to fire immediately and it doesn't look good for anybody and it's not good for the collective. So I think if you look at that, it, it makes a lot of sense. Okay. So, I mean, I've been mulling this stuff over for the last few years, and it's really, um, it's very engaging. But increasingly, what I'm starting to realize is the solution is normally hidden in plain sight. And more often than not, what we need to do is really spend more, much more time on the problem and with more eyes on the problem. And I think a lot of technology purchases don't have that. Same thing in the agency world, actually. How often do you suddenly get an RFP that lands on your desk and it's got to be written in two weeks and that's pretty much it? And so you down tools and everything, everyone just gets on with this and it's just massive distraction, disruption. There's no planning. And so I think there is there has to be a big shift where vendors, partners, ecosystems work in conjunction with and in partnership with the customer. Because what we need to be doing is helping them provide solutions that are fit for purpose. But the economics of the SaaS industry is really driven, basically, uh, to buy a wreck of a house, put a lick of paint, do it up, flip it, and make 100 grand. That's the ethos. That's not how you build rock-solid businesses. It's not how you build sustainable teams um, that are resilient and able to thrive in difficult times. And that's where I think a lot of the uh, technology companies are going to come unstuck in the next few months. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, again, I just go back to, do we need, this is something I talk about a lot just in my circles. (laughs) Do we need 9,500 MarTech solutions, right? Like It's near 11,000 now, by the way. Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, like, uh, look, over the next three years with everything that... uh, Again, I call a recession, whatever. Just call it economic distress, right? I think there's there's a lot of things. There's a reckoning happening. There's a correction happening. You know, there's obviously inflation post pandemic. 
you're going to see consolidation, continued consolidation, and you're going to see a lot of these organizations go out of business because honestly, I don't think you necessarily need ten solutions in, in yeah, one category. Have an email sequencer. We don't, you know, and it's like um, that's not to say that we want to stifle innovation, but it might say that if you're the tenth entry, you don't need five million dollars in funding, right? You got to show that it works, and so. I think some of that will shift the market, hopefully, in that people have more time to actually, it's just, people have time to learn, pivot, and hopefully excel as opposed to just, you know, really being given 90 days to like get something done. It just, it doesn't make sense to me. And it hasn't for a while because I've been on the other end of it, right? I've sat in the meetings with the CEOs of a 12-month, very senior buying committee that has to go through legal, security, whatever it may be. Again, these just different functions within an organization. And I'm literally saying like, hey, it's, it's, it's month three and we've got you these leads, but it's going to take time to close them. And hey, you might actually need more than one salesperson, right? And I get thrown out. Um, and so I've seen it firsthand and it's, uh, it's very unfortunate. Okay. So you've got an opportunity to build RevOps from a, a blank sheet of paper. Where do you start? That is a good question. Again, I mean, I see RevOps as the science of revenue, right? So there's got to be, uh, one, there's got to be a RevOps function. I think from, and I want to be honest, RevOps is a very, it's a very fledgling function and there's people way smarter than me on it. I've taken some courses on it. I've learned from some smart people, Eric Steves, who was on your podcast, people I follow on LinkedIn. I mean, to me, there needs to be that function in an organization, right? And again, when we talk about those first hires, we talk again, and winning by design, we'll say maybe an AE that knows the industry. They talk about not having that cufflink hire, right? That hits the table. That's not ready to get their hands dirty. From a marketing perspective, it's usually product marketing than demand gen. But I think we need to get to a place where one of those first three to four hires is some type of rev ops, right? And so today you'll have like marketing operations. You might have, you know, sales operations, two distinct roles. I would say there needs to be something that sits over all of that. And so it's that rev ops hire. Um, the more that I dabble in RevOps and again, try to incorporate some of that into my practice is just the idea of this data model, right? Like the data model should guide everything around it in terms of like volume metrics, conversion metrics, like what are the metrics that we need to make decisions and make tweaks to positively impact revenue? Going back to point one, if we have that RevOps person, there needs to be the systems and processes in place that allow us to grow and scale while aligning everybody from a visibility perspective into what we have, why we have it, how it impacts the customer, how it impacts our business, and how it impacts our people. And I think those last three things are critically important. And then after that, it's obviously cost and you know evaluating that quarterly. I just posted yesterday on LinkedIn, I was on a plane, so it wasn't maybe the best post, but I just went over three or four quick things that organizations should be doing to go into Q4, right? That's set up a data hygiene or a data clean dashboard to understand where the holes are, who's got 
What deals have, are sitting there that haven't been touched in X amount of time? What contacts are, don't have owners? What companies don't have associations? Just, just fundamental things that can positively impact the data that you have and correct anything. Understanding who's in your systems, right? Like every time I audit the system, I've got 10 people that haven't worked at the company. I mean, that's a security aspect that, you know, hasn't really been thought of. And then, you know, within that, I always say just checking your reports for anomalies, right? If you suddenly jump from a, I don't know, 50-day sales cycle to 200 days, is that accurate, right? Like there needs to be those checks and balances and getting yourself into a position of doing something like that quarterly, where you have a meeting of, if you have a RevOps function, they can lead it. If you don't, getting those client-facing departments, talking to each other, going over, it can be a spreadsheet, it can be an Airtable, it can be a SaaS product has all of that so you're aligned. Once you do it once, it doesn't, it's not as painful the next quarter. And then the next quarter, it's even less painful, right? And then two to three years down the line, it's humming. And I think um again, it's easier said than done. And I don't I'm, I'm pontificating a little bit, but I do think that's where we need to go. The the theme that's coming through and it seems to be a, a constant theme. It's something I bang on about all the time as well is stop focusing on the short term. You've got to focus on your medium to long term in terms of your systems, your plans, your processes, hiring, budgeting, building your bench, building your pipeline. It all happens where you slow down and you give yourself the time to build the relationship, to test, to measure, to work out what's working, what isn't. And you've got to go looking for the anomalies. You have to go looking uh, for... The things that prove your thesis wrong, um, because yep. that's where you get the real innovation. That's where you find the gaps. You've got to go looking for the bad news. You've got to run towards the sound of gunfire. But in this kind of economy, most people will do the opposite. They'll batten down the hatches and they'll play it safe. And that is the kiss of death. Now is the time to be innovating. Now is the time to be speaking to your customers and uh, finding out what they're trying to accomplish, what they're struggling with, and addressing those issues at a causal level, not a symptomatic level. Thoughts? Completely agree. I I mean, I I have the question I usually get a lot is why HubSpot? And I think for me, it's very easy. Having a single source of truth, right, not only impacts the business and gives you the visibility to behind the scenes, but it also optimizes, hopefully, the customer experience, right? If you have, again, a single source of truth and can make decisions in an agile manner without a lot of hand-wringing, it improves things for everyone. And so if you look, it's just important to look at everything, like you said, in the lens of the customer and just seeing how it can impact them and better impact the way they experience your organization, right? Like customer experience, user experience, call it what it is. It's just all about the engagement across all the different departments. Just think of anything that you've ever interacted with from a corporate standpoint, the more aligned the people are that you're working with, right? Like, let's say you're working with a contractor. You want the bathtub installer. If they don't come on the same day that the project manager told you, you're going to get pissed, right? And it's, again, it's, it's simple, but, you know, it's those little things that make the customer experience. Uh, One thing that I learned a while back, and I think it was Mark Herbert taught me this, was that every job description should have a window to the customer. And I think one of the things that we really should be doing 
is trying to work out how what we do, whether we see or speak to or directly touch the customer, impacts their experience. So I'm more and more moving over to the idea that this CX function should run the revenue operation because RevOps feels selfish. It's about us generating revenue, being an efficient organization. Whereas I think the customer experience piece starts with the at the right place, which is the customer and you build out from there. And yes, absolutely, we should make a profit and we should be a humming organization. That's fantastic, but not before the customer gets their needs met. And I think that's where yeah. I've gone wrong. That's interesting. I don't disagree. I would say I think a good, and again, I'm, I'm speaking out of turn a bit, but I do see a good RevOps function as serving the customer first in that you are, well, you know what? I'll, I'll table that one. I don't, I, I'm not going to go down. I, 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 I think I <laughs> a good, good RevOps does that, but the problem yeah. is the name Revenue Operations focuses your attention on the operations around generating revenue, not on delivering customer wow. And that's a great... Do all of the work for you. That's a great point. And winning by design, again, I've referenced them a lot, but you know they they say design is customer-centric sales process, right? So instead of, can't remember it right now, but it's using terms like uh, trade, right? (laughs) Things like that, just more more customer-centricity in talking about your processes. So, Pasha, this has been really, really interesting. We're coming to time now. I would love to get a sense of what would you advise somebody who's just about to embark on a major strategic purchase, like a HubSpot or a Salesforce? Don't be partisan. But what what are the things that they should be asking themselves and of the vendor to make sure that when they make this decision, it's sustainable? the users don't feel aggrieved and uh, decide to leave as a result. Um, you don't have to do the same exercise in two years' time. What, what yeah. advice would you give? Uh, I've got a few points. And I'll start by saying HubSpot Partner, not dogmatic about it. You know, I mean, there's always going to be different. Depending on where you're at, your organization's maturity, there could be a use for either, either CRM, right? First thing I would say is there needs to be a true committee when evaluating these kinds of purchases, right? That committee needs to involve any department that is customer facing and will be using it. Too many times I've seen the project manager be in charge of this purchase with minimal input and they have no idea what they're doing, right? And they will be taken advantage of in either indirectly or directly into making a purchase that maybe is not right for them. So the first thing is, and I'm, I'm not trying to committee things to death, but for something like this, you definitely need that committee. In terms of the questions, I think it's simple, right? The first is, how will it help my customer? Which goes back to what you and I have been talking about this episode. I think the second thing is, what's the business impact of getting this technology? And so what, you know, what's the impact if we're getting HubSpot? Do we see that impact from a revenue perspective, from a project management and process perspective, which again, hopefully influences um, shorter time to sale and obviously revenue. And then I think the third and most important and least asked is what's the people impact of this technology, right? So if I bring this on board, what do I need to do? One, to maintain it. Two, to train and upskill around it. And three, how can we ensure that the people that we're hiring aren't going to be put in a position where they're 
here to manage events and now are managing CRM data and zaps and makes to try to get the right data into the CRM, right? Because people don't sign up for that. And when they, what I found is there's probably 10% of the population that can upskill themselves and learn it really quickly. The rest are going to get frustrated and go to a different organization. So I think those three questions are critical to any type of um, purchase. Fantastic advice. And the, the other thing I would look at is what's the real job to be done by this piece of software or this investment? Because I don't think that's often thought about deeply enough. And as a result, people buy uh, the uh, <laughs> jobs to be done. People <laughs> buy the product for a point solution when it's part of a wicked problem. And yep. when you mess with the equilibrium of an imperfect system that's found balance, even though it's imperfect, you create more downstream problems. And I, that, that's why I think performance has been consistently falling. People should be buying an outcome, right? People want the three-inch hole, not the three-inch drill bit. Uh, that's a saying, yeah. take it for what it's worth. But yeah, I think buying the outcome, right? And again, I, for me, clearly, when I'm speaking to customers about HubSpot, it is a centralized single source of truth to help operationalize your go-to-market strategy, really. I mean, it's, you know, how can we operationalize that through this system, build out the right sales process in there, build out the handoffs, automate what we can, make sure we have the right reporting, embed the data model. That to me is where you're going to gain the most, you know, impact from it. Excellent. Pasha, how can people get hold of you? Yeah, so our website is coming. So that's going to be shapeandscale.co. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm very active there, Pasha Irshad. Or you can reach me by email, which is Irshad at shapeandscale.co. And it's just Irshad, not P. Irshad. Correct. Excellent. Pasha Irshad, thank you very much. Yeah, this has been awesome. A really great chat. I appreciate it. My pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful, then please like, comment, subscribe, tag somebody. And if you feel the urge, go to Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast channel uh, you can leave a review and leave an honest review. Tell the truth. If you hate it, say so. I won't be offended. I just appreciate the feedback. If you want to get a hold of me, Marcus at laughsiphonlast.com. And if you want to get in contact about my um, successful selling program, then please drop me a line on LinkedIn or use the link in the blurb. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Take care. Bye.